I had to cue the sound, man, again. Well, it's good to uh, take our Bibles and uh, now focus our attention upon the Word of God this morning. And uh, I have quite a bit to say this morning, uh, even though this is a Communion Sunday. Uh, I try and be mindful of that, but this passage is so rich that uh, I really didn't want to cut too much out of it. So uh, buckle up and be ready. Get your Bibles uh, at the ready. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses uh, 17 to 19. This is the last section on Abraham, and I'm very excited to share with you some of the the great truths that uh, are here, both actually in in Hebrews as well as in Genesis 22. You might hold your place uh, there as well if you prefer. I want to say just uh, as opening words here that we often carry on or take a particular course of action that can seem at times rather daring, I think, or even unpopular because of some guarantee that we have of a future reality. In other words, if you know that something is going to take place in the future that would have a bearing on on what you do in the present, then you go ahead and do what you need to do in the present. It, It makes sense. That thinking is perhaps best captured, I think, in the expression, I'm counting on it. I'm counting on it. Why, someone says, aren't you taking advantage of the great automotive sale that Acme Car Repair is having all month? Seems to me that your car could use it. Because, you say, my son's a mechanic and I'm counting on him to fix it. Why did you go back to work? I see it's it's up and running again. Oh, someone says, I make more on unemployment. I'm counting on it to continue. Well, that's not too good. The government has sent out a few stimulus checks to Americans during the pandemic. As you know, maybe you've received them. And uh, a lot of them count on this check to the point really where uh, it has changed their work habits quite a bit. John didn't pick a a rain date for his upcoming uh, outing on Saturday because he's counting on the meteorologist forecast for 75 and sunny. Karen spent an exorbitant amount of money for the function next month because she's counting on a big turnout. Tim just quit his job with no safety net of another job in place because he's counting on getting hired by some big company. I think you get the idea. We use this phrase all the time, and this is pretty close to what we mean by it. People change their habits. They curtail their urgings. They act in unusual ways or unreasonable and illogical ways sometimes. They'll stay the course. They'll jump ship because they're counting on on something to happen in the future that will justify these kinds of actions. Now, we're in the book of Hebrews, and we've been spending our time in chapter 11, where the writer's point, where he points to champions of righteousness who, like people today, counted on a future reality. Hopefully you've gotten at least that much from our study of the book of Hebrews. They're counting on a future reality. They look to the end, really, to justify the means of of living the way they do. But unlike people today, the end that they're counting on was a sure thing. The promise of God's future blessing of heaven. That is a sure thing. It exists, and it is waiting for them, or was waiting for them. They, of course, lived thousands of years ago. They They just hadn't experienced it yet. 
And they had a guarantee that they would experience it someday. And in light of that future reality, they lived faithfully, denied themselves the pleasantries of this world, stayed the course, resisted temptations, and lived holy lives against all odds. The writer wanted his first century Jewish Christian audience who were wavering. They were not champions at all. They were wavering. And he wanted them to to be so characterized by this kind of attitude and action. And he wants us also today to be characterized this way. It's a timely message, especially in our season of apostasy and compromise that characterizes American Christianity. And we find stellar example in Abraham. So let's look at Abraham, the bottom line idea that comes from this particular text. I published it for you in the bulletin. It goes like this. Faith, when tested, faith, when tested, obediently surrenders to God whatever he asks because it's counting on God's covenant promise of future blessing. Do you see how that works? Faith, when tested, obediently surrenders to God God whatever God asks because it count or is counting on God's covenant promise of future blessing. We're looking at the future, the future reality, in order to direct and justify our thinking and our behavior now. Let's read it, verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And the one who had received the promise was offering up his only son. It was he to whom it was said, through Isaac your descendant shall be named He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. All right? This is the last section on Abraham's faith. It is the dramatic episode in his life when God tested him with the sacrifice of his son Isaac. You're all probably very familiar with it. It divides up nicely into two parts. Verses 17 and 18 is the first part. Verse 19 is the second part. So let's begin. First things first. With the first part, faith, when tested, obediently surrenders to God whatever he asks. Whatever God asks, faith will obediently surrender. I think before we get into this particular truth, this section, we need to understand something about divine testing. Now, this is not a message on divine testing, but there are a couple of things I need to highlight just to make sure that we grasp what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So with divine testing, you need to understand that divine testing is one of God's means that he uses to conform us to his image. So it's a positive thing. Testing is always a positive thing, even though it might not feel that way. It is far different, in fact, far opposite of tempting. And I mention that because the New Testament uses the same Greek word for both, for both testing and tempting. You know which one is being used because the context will tell you. God, for example, is often the subject of testing, but never, ever the subject of tempting. He tests, but he never tempts. The reason this is, or this has to be, has to do with the purpose of, of each activity. On the one hand, tempting is designed to bring a believer down, to destroy his faith and his trust in God's word. Testing, on the other hand, strengthen a, strengthens a believer's faith and trust in God. It makes him more like Christ. 
That's the major difference between the two, and it's worth remembering. God never tempts us, but he, temp he tests us. James actually settled that in his epistle, if you remember. But doesn't Jesus tell us to pray and ask God not to lead us into temptation? Doesn't he do that in his formulaic prayer, Matthew 6? You might remember that. Uh, yes, he does, but the context is key here. The parallel phrase coming right after this command is, but deliver us from evil. Do you remember? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The, that parallel uh, clause tells us that what we're asking God to do is really to keep us safe from evil. Keep us safe from evil. So for the record, people and Satan himself test uh, or tempt rather Christians. They tempt Christians all the time in order to lure them away from righteousness. But God never does this. God only tests our faith in order to strengthen it and make us more like Christ. That's Romans 8 verses 28 and 29 in case you're wondering. Now what else should we know about divine testing? Well, that it's for our benefit, not for God's benefit. In other words, God does not test us in order to know what we might do. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but he doesn't because God is sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning, and he knows exactly what you would do. <laughs> so God's tests are for our benefit. Either by passing or failing his test, he shows us really what's in our hearts. Okay, this is really the... The crux of testing. Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, listen to verse 2. God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years in order to humble you, putting you to the test to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now again, God did, didn't need to test Israel so that he could find out whether they would be loyal to him or not. He is God. He knows these things already. Rather, he was interested in revealing his people's hearts to them. You see, sometimes we don't know what's in our hearts. They may be a rogue, sinful thought that's ready to take control of our entire thinking and our behavior. So God brings a test tailor-made just for you that is sure to bring that particular sinful thought to light that you might repent of it and change. Or maybe there's some fruit of the Spirit that we are especially weak in. The test will show it. A Christian woman never knew that she was an impatient person until God gave her triplets. In this case, we're like tea bags. This is a great way to think about this. We're like tea bags. And when God submerges us in a hot water situation, What's inside bleeds out, so you can see it, so everybody else can see it as well. In these tests, we learned something about ourselves that God already knew. He just wanted us to know. And there are other times when sin is not currently governing our hearts, and, and God might create a situation that will show us maybe the extent of our faithfulness. And that last category of test is exactly what we find in Abraham's case. So now we can go to the text and, and, and understand what's going on here. I want you to understand that what God did for Abraham was a test of loyalty. God was testing Abraham's loyalty to his will or to his word. 
In Hebrews 11, 17 to 18, we see right away that God tests Abraham in order to show Abraham the extent of his loyalty, which was confirmed, of course, to him when he passed the test. And the original account in Genesis 22 confirms this. Now, one other very important fact about Abraham's test that you need to get is that it involved no trial, no persecution of some, or, or some dire situation. That's very important to understand. In other words, the test was not to determine if Abraham would be faithful with some adversity. That's very common. God often brings adversity into our lives. It could be an illness. It could be an accident. It could be anything that we find distressful so that he might condition our hearts, show us what's there. Again, there might be sin. There might be a, a, a weakness in, our, uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, whatever. But this is not the case with Abraham. Sometimes God will, will test us to see if we are faithful simply with his word, with his command. This test was meant to show Abraham how loyal he was to God by whether he would obey a clear command, was clear as could be. Now understand this, Abraham may make this context of obedience into a trial, depending on the way he accepted it and handled it, but the context of this test itself is not adversity but really some, some, something very simple. It is a clear command of God's word. That's it. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Abraham passed God's tailor-made test for him by faith. And we'll elaborate on, on just how he did that momentarily. But first, let's, let's pause for a, a word of, of some practical stuff here. Before we go on, we, we need to admit that we can sympathize with Abraham. We can, because we have all faced this kind of test, and we continue to face it on somewhat of a regular basis. There are times, perhaps, when we know what God expects us to do because it is clearly marked out in his word in black and white, and we hesitate. Why do we hesitate? Obedience, in this instance, doesn't seem to us to be the best option. Of course, we now know more than God, right, about our context. I've observed in my years of the pastorate that Christians often have difficulty, not so much with the gray areas in life, like, should I get married now? No, it's the clear-cut commands that become tests for them. Marry only in the Lord. That seems to be a difficult one for a lot of people in the church. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Don't fornicate. Don't divorce illegitimately. Pay your taxes. I cannot tell you how many Christians I know violate these commands with no hint of embarrassment or conviction, rationalizing them away so they can pursue ungodly desires. How prepared are you, beloved, to obey God's word in any context, no matter what the command is? Is your faith in God or is it in something else at that very moment, Abraham was characterized by this kind of faithfulness, which is why he is the father of those who believe. All right, enough practical stuff. Let's get to the text again. Abraham faced this kind of te uh, test. And the command that he received was designed to show him if he was 100% loyal to God, as we said. The question on this test, we've all taken tests. This test had only one question. That's it. But it was a tough one. The, t the, 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 the question was this. 
Will you gladly surrender that which you know is the will of God for you to have? Will you willingly surrender to God that which you know is the will of God for you to have? Did you hear that? God was not asking Abraham if he would get up, give up smoking for him or stop chewing tobacco or stop getting drunk for him. It was not a sinful habit or a vice that Abraham was asked to part with, as difficult as those sometimes are to break. They are. We don't deny that. No, he, he, has, he asks Abraham to surrender something that Abraham knew full well was God's will for him to have. To surrender a gift from God back to God. A special precious gift at that. And while the first part of verse 17 tells us that he did, by faith, Abraham, when tested, offered up Isaac. Just like that. You need to read this verse with the same, in the same breath with the next two clauses in the rest of verse 17 and all of verse 18 because it's the rightest way of telling us that this was no small test for Abraham but a demanding one. Let me read it for you all together in a proper tonal inflection that, you, that it might, this might be obvious to you. By faith, Abraham, when tested, offered up Isaac the only one who had received the promise was offering up his only son. It was he to whom he said, through Isaac your descendant shall be named. That's who and that's what is the idea. The writer in essence is saying, Abraham, the, the very one received, this very one who received the promise, that one that we're talking about, he was offering up the son of promise. Do you realize what I'm saying, the writer says? It was Isaac that God not only gave him, but gave him as the progenitor of the line of Messiah. And he offered him up. Maybe you get the idea now. God, you remember, made a covenant with Abraham promising to make him the father of many nations. Indeed, his offspring would be as the stars of the heavens, it says in Genesis 22. More than this, these countless descendants would come not through Ishmael, his biological son with Hagar, or for that matter, through his many other biological sons that he had with Keturah, the second wife after Sarah died. Oh no. No, God told Abraham, through Isaac your descendants shall be named, Genesis 21.12. So let's put this into perspective, okay? When Abraham first encountered God and heard the gospel from him back in Ur, he was childless with no hope of having any biological children with Sarah. That was a sad condition, to be sure, in the ancient Near East. After this conversion, God made a covenant with him, promising him that the godly line would eventually produce Messiah, and that would come through his union with Sarah. Now, how do you think Abraham felt when God kept the first stage of the promise and gave him an heir in his old age. To say that he was elated probably is an understatement. The reality that he had a child of his own with Sarah was no doubt a dream come true. And then to think that through this child, God would exponentially multiply his descendants to incorporate not only nations, but the very Messiah himself. 
Well, that was surely an overwhelming wonder. Abraham is on top of the world right now. Now try to imagine how he felt when God gave him the task of sacrificing his only heir. God essentially pulls the proverbial rug out from under Abraham's feet. Only those who have lost a child can, can relate to what Abraham might be feeling. Might be feeling, because although Abraham lost his, uh, was, stood to lose his child, in this case, he himself would be the instrument of his child's death. Now that changes things a bit. Abraham no doubt felt the weight of this command for many reasons, many reasons. For one, it was out of character for God, right? Since we know that God rejected human sacrifice and forbade it later in the law. Well, for another, it made little sense. Why would God give a miracle baby through whom he would then bless the nations and bring about Messiah only to take him away? Isaac was the linchpin to all of this. With Isaac gone, God's plans fail, and Abraham is, well, he's back to square one again with no heir. But I think the greatest reason of all that Abraham found this command to be difficult is mostly because he was sure that it was God's will that he had Isaac. No question about it. Sarah was barren. They were elderly. They had a kid. God told him so. God commanded Abraham then to sacrifice something that Abraham knew was the will of God for him to have. It was a good thing. God ordained, God sanctioned, a divine gift from the hand of a gracious God. God commands him to give it up. Time for some practical words. With those Christians who find it difficult to obey clear commands of God, as we mentioned, because God's commands sometimes are, are not convenient and, and interrupt their preferred lifestyle. Many other Christians, and mature ones at that, find it very difficult to give up something that they know is God's will for them to have. Yes. Those in full-time ministry, for example, who are not only sure that God has called them to full-time ministry, but even have the confirmation of, of local elders in a church and were sent by them, have made the, this particular gift more important to them than pleasing Christ. That can happen. Pastor immerses himself in his pastorate so much that he neglects his wife. Everyone at church is so thrilled to have such a Hands-on pastor, who cares? He spends long hours at the office. He counsels people, encourages them, equips the saints, does the work of an evangelist. But what they don't know is that his wife is home and she is lonely. And he hasn't a clue as to what's going on in his kids' lives. And his family deteriorates. Is he willing to give up his ministry for his wife? That's a great question. Last I checked, wives come before ministry. Many of the missionaries of old didn't grasp this, even though they're held up as paragons of biblical virtue. And they would send their distressed wives that were with them on the field back to America to be institutionalized while they carried on the work for Christ, as if Christ needed them to carry on the work, right? Oh, where would Jesus be without them? 
You might not be a pastor or a full-time Christian worker, but you, you've received God's gracious gifts. You have. I know you have. But as wonderful as they are, are you willing to surrender them to please Christ? Old Testament scholar Alan Ross, commenting on Genesis 22, says this, quote, If anyone is inclined to be a true worshiper of God, it will involve the willingness to sacrifice whatever is dearest and most treasured, even if such should be considered a gift from God, end quote. He's right. Nothing should sidetrack us from following the will of God, not even God's gracious gifts. Be careful not to let the gift become more important than obeying the giver. Now let me tell you that Abraham handled this command of God very well. We're back to the text now. You can relax for a moment. Uh, He did this very well, beyond belief, actually. How do we know this? Well, the actual Genesis account, chapter 22, Moses is deliberately brief in recounting Abraham's actions from the time he received God's command to the time that he actually attempted to sacrifice his son. Now, biblical writers often use brevity in their narratives to make an important point. And in this context, Moses wants us to understand that Abraham was unhesitatingly submissive to the will of God. Listen to Genesis 22, verses 3 to 6. Early the next morning, Abraham rose, loaded his donkey, took the two of his servants and Isaac, cut enough wood to be burnt for the burnt offering, set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham saw the place in the distance. He took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on, on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Doesn't that sound so uneventful, so unremarkable? We might even say so common, so routine. There's no question, uh, or no mention, rather, of Abraham sweating it out. Wouldn't you be sweating it out as he moved one day closer to that event? No mourning, no discussion. We don't hear him thinking out loud. There's no prayer. Oh, Lord, save this child, please, as David did, you remember? There's no mention of what he was thinking during the three-day journey, and and this is all intentional. Moses is quite deliberate about the lack of information regarding Abraham's state of mind and the rapid succession of action verbs, all uh, very deliberate. Abraham rose, he loaded, he took, he cut, he set out, he saw, he placed, he carried. Why? Moses wants us to see that Abraham was only too willing to obey the Lord. That's right. That's hard for us to believe, but it's true. In verse 5, he's recorded as saying that he and Isaac were going uh, going a distance away by themselves to worship. Very interesting, isn't it? He wasn't lying. All right, time for some practical thoughts. Up to this point, some of you may be saying, well, I understand about loyalty, but it's, it's not easy to be that loyal in a world that attracts our senses. After all, we're still housed in, in a fleshly body. One of the elements that, that's missing in the lives of Christians who find it so hard to obey the Lord and his will is this, ad, is this attitude of worship. I really believe that. When you're among, if you're among them, you need to start seeing obedience to God's commands as an act of worship. Obedience 
is an expression of intimacy. That's right. Do you remember what Jesus said? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right, back to the text. Abraham, Abraham was submissive and he was quick to obey without, without any questions asked. And here's how Alan Ross explains it from, again, his Genesis commentary. Quote, the response of Abraham to God's instruction is truly amazing. Instant, unquestionable obedience. The narrative report traces his journey of three days to the appointed place with, with an elegant simplicity. There's, there's no mention of his feelings or thoughts, only the report of instant compliance with the, with the hard instructions, end quote. How do we account for such compliance in this extreme case, which is almost as hard to believe as the command to sacrifice Isaac? It's one thing to be eager to obey a command to encourage your brother or not to steal or to, to pay your taxes, to, to submit to authority. But to sacrifice something that you love, to surrender something that God himself gave to you and, and it is his will for you to have, well, that's quite another matter. Yes, I understand. But Moses wants, wants you to know that it shouldn't be that way. And we're talking about the ideal. And this is what we need to strive for. It wasn't that way for Abraham. We find the secret to his unflagging loyalty in the second part. And the second part is in verse 19. And it goes this way. Faith counts on God's covenant promise of future blessing. It counts on God's covenant promise of future blessing. It's all of verse 19, and it answers the question, how could Abraham have responded without complaining and with no hesitation to the severe demand of God himself? Here's the answer. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham ministered to himself with the biblical facts about his God. The writer now gives us some of what Abraham was thinking that motivated him to obey in this submissive and thankful way. His faith was in a covenant God who never goes back on his promises. If he said it, he will do it. And that's the character of God. And he's proven this over and over again to his people throughout time. We should never question that. Abraham didn't question it. And this was foundational with him. So if God is the covenant God and God cannot lie or go back on his word but always keeps his promises and God's covenant promise to Abraham was specifically that through Isaac would come Messiah and this wonderful salvation of people from every nation, then Abraham reasons to himself that if Isaac must die, God would just have to raise him up from the ashes of his burnt offering. That's all there is to it. Wow. That is astounding. It's astounding, to say the least, but not hard to believe, as some commentators would have us believe. Why do they say that this is difficult to believe? Well, there is a popular view among Old Testament scholars that resurrection was not well-developed apparently not well enough to have made this kind of an impression on Abraham. Of course, these are liberal commentators, but uh, the view is 
permeated some of the more conservative commentaries. So I want you to know I strongly disagree with that, and here's why. Here's why. I'll digress for just a, a few moments. The ancient Near Eastern peoples did believe in resurrection of the body in the afterlife. They did. Perhaps the Egyptians are the greatest example of this. We have archaeological evidence from Egyptian sarcophagi dating back even before the time of Abraham that Egyptians embalmed their dead specifically for this reason, that they would live in the new afterlife. They needed their bodies. Now, if you're wondering where that idea of resurrection came from, because it didn't come from the Egyptians, it came before them, I would submit to you that they were that that this idea was corrupt a corrupt version of the truth that God gave the first couple, Adam and Eve. We know of practices that God instituted at the beginning of time that sinful people distort and corrupted over time. And sacrifice is one example. Sacrifice. God taught Adam and Eve all about sacrificing, various offerings, and, and their significance first with the animals that he himself had to sacrifice for their redemption, if you remember, he would have no doubt then explained to them that these animal sacrifices were merely object lessons of the substitutionary death that Messiah, the seed of woman, would undergo for the salvation of many. Now, we know that that they then taught Cain and Abel about proper sacrificing because Genesis 4 affirms that. And we know that the practice and its rationale was passed down from generation to generation because Noah brought clean animals and kept them separate from the unclean, the ordinary animals, on the ark so that he might sacrifice to God when the time came. What I'm suggesting is that down through the centuries, as sin increased, the practice of sacrificing was corrupted, redefined among the ungodly line. We see redefinition happening all over the place today. The line of Cain did this, which is why when God finally constituted Israel as a nation, his people, he gave them instructions on how to sacrifice correctly. God established the sound and sacred way of sacrifice, which was visibly different from the pagan sacrificing. No temple prostitutes allowed. No sacrificing babies allowed. No drinking blood of the animal that is sacrificed allowed or eating the fatty portions of it. None of that is allowed. The fire that burns up the offering, it has to come from God himself. No strange fire allowed. Nadab and Abihu found that out the hard way. They would not sacrifice as the pagans did. So we're not surprised that other godly ways of communing with God were likewise corrupted very early on in human civilization, including the idea of resurrection of the dead. Now, there is a theology of resurrection in the Old Testament. We don't have time really to go through this, but there are plenty of passages. Job, for example, he said, Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. David declared, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead or to the grave, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Hmm. 
Asaph declared, Psalm 73, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my, of my right hand. You will guide me with your plan and afterward receive me to glory. Isaiah, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the, de to the departed spirits. Hosea 13, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Death, where are your thorns? Sheol, where is your sting? Sound familiar? Daniel 12 is the last one. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There's no question about the doctrine or theology of resurrection in the Old Testament. In fact, messianic prophecies regarding the resurrection, they're just as rife in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Jesus walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Do you remember that? He opened the scriptures to them regarding what? His death and resurrection from the Old Testament. Remember Paul, Peter, the other apostles, Stephen, Philip, Jude, and others preached the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament yet. It wasn't written. They couldn't whip out their pocket New Testament and say, see? No. From the Old Testament. Everything we proclaim today from the new that they proclaimed, they proclaimed from the old. If, as we have argued before, that God told Abraham the gospel, and as Jesus told the Pharisees, Abraham really did rejoice to see his day, Jesus coming, then it is no stretch at all that in gospel presentation that God gave to Abraham, there was a full picture of what a resurrected life would be in the better country to come. No question, beloved. And it's also no stretch that Abraham thought that, that the God of resurrection would certainly raise Isaac from the dead if that's what it took to keep his covenant promises. Actually, we, we know that this is what he thought because the writer of Hebrews tells us this in no uncertain terms. And since the New Testament is really the word of the Holy Spirit, God himself is telling us what Abraham thought. The bottom line here is that because Abraham, by faith, was counting on God's promises of future blessing, he was able to obey a difficult command without hesitation or regret. And as a result of what Abraham considered, he became resolved in his heart to obey the Lord in this area. Well, the last clause that we need to consider in verse 19 is what I would call an editorial comment. I love editorial comments. You should too when they're in the biblical text because they're valuable. And, and when we find them, we, we come across really what it is that the writer is actually thinking about what he's saying. That's what an editorial comment is. In this case, the writer of Hebrews tells us more about the heart of Abraham. Specifically, that he did sacrifice or surrender his only begotten son, the son of promise, for the will of God. Here's how he says it. 
from which he also received him back as a type. Now, why does the, what does the writer mean by this? Well, some Hebrew commentaries take their cue from the New American Standard Bible, which I just read from. And the King James Version says the same thing. And they argue that the act of God giving Isaac back to Abraham from certain death is a type of resurrection of Christ. That's how they understand this. And some of them see rather elaborate parallels between Isaac and Jesus. By the way, this, this thinking goes all the way back to the church fathers, so it's nothing new. Like Jesus, they say, Isaac was also an only begotten and unique son in the sense that he was the son of promise. That's true. Like Jesus, he had a miraculous birth. That's true. Like Jesus, he carried the very wood on which he would be sacrificed. That's true. They say that these parallels, taken together with the fact that Abraham believed that God would, would raise Isaac from the dead, show that Isaac was a type of Christ. Now that may sound convincing at first glance, but the argument falls short. As close as these parallels might seem, Isaac was spared from real death. Jesus was not. Jesus did rise from the dead. Isaac did not. If there is anything in the story that might symbolize Jesus, it would be the ram caught in the thicket that God provided as Isaac's substitute. But that has nothing to do with resurrection and everything to do with a substitutionary atonement. Now, I believe that asserting Isaac as a type of Christ is forced. But the writer says so himself, you say. He says that Abraham also received him back as a type. Well, not really. That's the New American Standard Version of Hebrews 11.19. The NIV, the New King James Version, and the ESV translation uh, translate the verse in a way that is not only quite legitimate, but I believe more in keeping with Genesis 22. The idea here is this. It's not, that, it's not as a type, quote-unquote, but really in a figurative way. So here's how I would read verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and in a manner of speaking, there's the phrase, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Did you hear the difference in a manner of speaking, or we could say in a figurative way Abraham received Isaac back from the dead, or in a sense Abraham received him back from the dead? In other words, the writer says that just as Abraham in one sense did sacrifice Isaac, so he in another sense received him back from the dead. And this speaks to the heart. And this is really what I want to close with. I want to zero in on this. You'll notice back in verse 17 that it says that Abraham sacrificed Isaac, his only son. That is a summary of the entire Genesis account. But is it accurate? Did Abraham really sacrifice his son? That's what it says. It says past tense, sacrificed, not attempted. Moses tells us that God stopped Abraham before he, slayed, he slew the lad, right? But realize this. We're talking about the heart, right? Actions are first born in the heart. New inten intentions manifest in the hands. That's Old Testament talk for behavior. Only after they have been born in the heart. What's in our heart, in other words, comes out in our actions. 
But not always. Sometimes our thoughts never make it out into our behavior. We don't always act on everything we think. Thank God for that. Well, we can have some pretty sinful thoughts, but not so fast. God still holds us accountable for those sinful thoughts, even though we don't act on them. That's right. God is most concerned, you see, about what happens in our hearts. That's what he's most concerned about. I don't mean to say that our actions don't matter. I simply mean that they incur a whole different set of consequences. That's the difference. Wanting to steal something will not wind you up in federal prison. Acting it out will. Nonetheless, wanting to steal is a sin. And God condemns people on the level of the thought life. He does. Ten Commandments prove that. Having said that, then, Abraham did sacrifice Isaac. He committed it in his heart. To him, it was a foregone conclusion. He readied himself even for the action. And this was enough from God's point of view, and since it was a test, to stop Abraham from acting it out. He didn't need to. The writer of Hebrews recognizes this truth. He knows that even though Abraham did not manage to sacrifice his only begotten son, he did in a manner of speaking. He did figuratively. He did in his heart. He committed that. And if that's true, then in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. It's the last word on, on uh, or last practical word I'll give. My last practical comment centers, is, is central, rather, to the text, and it's revolutionary. It's a revolutionary principle for us to apply in our good fight, in fighting the good fight, and, and, it, and it is the importance of self-reasoning. Self-reasoning. This kind of fits under the category of renewing, renewing your mind. Some call it self-speak. What we've got going on here is an instance where Abraham, by faith, really prevented himself from failing the test, from disobeying God, by reasoning to himself out of potential failure. Reasoned. He reasoned himself out of potential failure and into success. That is, he reasoned this way, that on the basis of what he knew to be true about God's character and nature, that God would indeed Raise Isaac from the dead. That's what he believed. That's what he reasoned. And that is what gave him the wherewithal to finish the task. Faith reasons from sound biblical knowledge. This is what we need to do with ourselves, especially in situations that are difficult, like this one. In moments when our faith is tested and we have to contend with our doubting selves, we need to minister to ourselves with biblical facts. We need to say to ourselves, look, this, look at this one trying instance against the grand picture of eternal life. When you see that your glorious end in heaven is, is, is real and waiting for you, then you'll see that it justifies the means that God uses to prepare us for that place. That's how we need to reason. When we can obey God in instances 
where it makes little logical sense to, it's because we have widened the lens to see that this one instance makes absolute sense in the grand picture of things. When obedience to God's word might seem to us in a particular instance to go contrary even to God's plans, we need to, we need to remind ourselves, we need to talk to ourselves that, look, we don't have enough information to conclude that obeying God in a single instance is enough to thwart his ultimate will for the ages. But more importantly, we need to argue with ourselves that it is impossible for anything to thwart God's plans. And also that God will keep his promises because he can and he will. Faithful worshiper will hold nothing back from God then. When he reasons this way, he will obediently give to God whatever God asks, trusting that the Lord will provide in the end. And not just at the immediate end. Because sometimes there is some delay there, but certainly at the end of time, he will deliver faith when tested, obediently surrenders to God whatever he asks, because it is counting on God's covenant promises for future blessing.